Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Maida, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. We're all looking for that next great business idea, and sometimes it's hovering right above you or maybe sitting in the palm of your hand. Entrepreneurship isn't always about inventing a new product or service. Most successful new companies are solving problems or seeing opportunities that should be obvious, but aren't to most people. The solution can be a high-flying innovation or it can be a commitment to quality. Whatever it is, it usually pays off for the folks who have the good sense to produce the idea that's right in front of them. If you're first to market, well, it's easy to drum up business. It might be hard to imagine revolutionizing the drumstick, but that's what my guest Frank Kinsel is doing with his company, LaBackbeat. Your average rock and roll drummer can blow through two or three sticks every gig. That's a lot of wood, and the costs add up. Frank stepped off the road from a career as a touring drummer to start carving high-quality, durable, small-batch drumsticks. Labac Beat has become a phenomenon among professional drummers who turn to Frank's sticks for their build and consistency. Instead of two or three sticks per gig, try two or three gigs per stick. That's saving money. And Frank's been a tinkerer since childhood. He built his first bass drum out of scrap at age 10, and today... He's lathing 250 sticks a day and shipping them to drummers around the country. Frank Kinsel, welcome to Out to Lunch. Hey, how you doing, Christian? Uh, my next crest career took off when he looked up from his job overseeing petrochemical mega projects. A marketing drone hovered above him, and he thought, why not use these for my job? Adam Zayer launched Fly Guys in 2017 and has since grown it into a multinational aerial imaging company based here in Lafayette. Fly Guys helps clients in agriculture, energy, construction, and telecommunications get a bird's eye view of their projects. It's a clever, low-cost business model. Fly, Guy, Fly Guys brokers with 5,500 contract drone pilots using project managers to coordinate them. Fly Guys doesn't own the equipment, which makes the model easy to scale up, and scale up it has. Today, the company operates in all 50 states and 72 countries. Adam Zayer, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you very much, Christian. So, Frank, one thing that I have learned uh, from drummers in my life uh, is they're very particular about their sticks. Oh, yes. Yeah. So how did you get drummers to break their habits and try yours? Oh, uh, well, that's, that has been an ongoing challenge. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you just really just got to, a lot of it has a tendency, you got to get it in their hands. Um, drummers, like you said, are, are particular, much like every musician is, yeah. you know, a uh, saxophonist has a reed that he, he or she particularly likes to play, guitar player has a particular string, and guitar uh, drummers have drumsticks. And so, really, it's, it's getting the, a similar model mm -hmm. that I may make uh, to what they're currently using in their hands and, and get them to play it for a little while. And if they like it, they like it. If they don't, then well, they go back to the other brand. Do, do, do you, are you just waiting for them backstage at gigs and you're pouncing on them with a, with a pouch of sticks? I mean, how do you even, like, start the conversation? Uh, well, it's, it's, that's an interesting question. Um, a lot of it started at the drum center uh, with uh, Brad and uh, Jack, uh, Jack Longley and those guys at the drum center, Mike Birch, and... That's I worked there for years, so 
Brad was really good at getting the product in the store, and that enabled a lot of drummers to get their hands on them and check them out. And at that time, when I first started, I think I was making three models uh, over the years. Now it's I've scaled up, on, and I say unfortunately, but it is kind of an unfortunate mess that I have. Because it's it's up to ninety models now. So there's. You make 90 models. I make 90 models. Okay. And so, uh, the, but that's, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket in comparison to like some of your majors in the industry that make a hundred, you know, several hundred models of drumstick. Um, it's, like I said, it's, it's one of those things I may have to begin scaling it back. Um, I've already decided that I'm, I'm not going to push any more models out there. I'm just, I'm going to have to stop. I mean, is the variation just, like, the type of wood and the size? I mean, how do you get from 3 to 90? Like, what are the iterations between those different models? Well, uh, so everything I turn is, is hickory. Uh, hickory, is, uh, it's got a good shock property to it. You see a lot of your axe handles, hammer handles, shovel handles, anything that's a striking instrument made out of hickory. It withstands the shock, the blow of, the, of, of impact. Um, I'm allergic to maple, so I can't turn maple. Uh, hard maple. Um, learned that the hard way. Um, after a couple of turns, you know, and the second time, it was like, man, you feel like doo-doo, you know? It's like, I'm in bed for three days and finally connected the dots and uh, no more maple. Uh, so a lot of it can be just a variation on length. It could be a tip difference. Um, it could be a diameter. Um, I've had to really be cautious on the very minuscule diameter adjustments because drummers have a tendency to reach out and they they want something to save five thousandths off of something i already make and most people can't tell the difference of five thousandths hmm. five thousandths is maybe a little less than the thickness of a sheet of paper you know so it, it's going to be really hard to tell that's some intense quality control adam you employ what let's say a dozen full-time employees or so, right? I mean, like the scale of your actual full-time operation, how many people? We're at 19 full-time employees right now. And, and then you've got thousands of contractors. And so it struck me, okay, well, how does that work? I mean, to make sure that, you know, you're, you're, you're employing, I'm assuming these folks from around the, around the globe in these 72 countries. And so, I mean, it sounds like it could be challenging to uh, apply like a standard across that. So how do you do that? Yeah, so we have around uh, 5,800 last time I looked. I think that was yesterday. Um, you never know who you're really working with until you work with them. So what we do is we essentially ask questionnaires up front, get equipment information, ask them about their history of flight, make sure that they're verified, get their insurance information, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then we'll send them out on a small type of flight mm -hmm. once we send them out at that small type of flight we see how they do you know did they arrive on time were they courteous to the client did they send the information back to us um, as quickly as possible typically the same day etc etc and then once you know that you know that you can send them to a larger type of project and then a larger type of project and then essentially we have um, ranking systems inside of our platform that tell us who's the best of the best hmm. in, a, in a certain area. So it's like 
I mean, I, I, I feel like I use this analogy all the time, and it gets a bit, bit, bit Is there like an Uber kind of element going on here where, you, where you're basically like rating individual drivers? You know, There's definitely an Uber element involved, yes. We have a proprietary platform system that we use to manage the pilots, the projects, the clients, and the data. Wow. So our, our project managers sit in the room, use our proprietary platform system. They'll type in a zip code or, or a client will order a job. Um, they'll put the address in, we'll type in a zip code, a list of pilots that are close by, show up, it shows their rating, it shows how many jobs they've done for them, it shows their equipment, and it shows any notes that we have on them. And then we essentially just uh, pick three or four of those pilots, ping them with our app that they have downloaded, and see who wants the job. Another thing crossed my mind when I just saw the, the, the number of countries that you're working in, I mean, so as a, a journalist, I've, I've assigned drone photos before and it can be a real pain because you got to deal with you have to get an FAA certified drone pilot but I'm thinking you've got to deal with 72 or more FAAs I mean how are you even dealing with the regulatory compliance on this right so right now fly guys proper uh works in about seven countries okay the other the, the remaining countries we work through a partner I got you. Okay. Yeah. So a partner that that's based out of Germany. I mean, is it do do the regulations vary that greatly from country to country? I mean, if I just sort of making a mountain out of a molehill and like, well, you know, flight regulations are kind of the same. I mean, because they you know, all vary. Okay. They yeah. all vary. So there's a significant amount of work that has to go in, into it on huh. the front side before you can operate in in the country. Yeah. So Frank, you were learning to code at some point, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I'm hearing you know Adam talk about you know the proprietary platform and the things I'm thinking like, now you're in a shop with a 50 year old lathe and you're spinning things out of dowels, but there's another alternate dimension where Frank Kinsel's maybe coding a drone pilot software. Have, oh, no. you, have you considered? I mean, <laughs> taking a more computer automated approach to what you do? Uh, well, I have, but in the last uh, two years with the element of just mechanical breakdowns um i can only imagine uh, a a software uh glitch or an error or anything <laughs> having to sort through that and, and get that sorted as well yeah um, so for, you know how to code also I, I did my coding my coding days are 15 20 years old. i've always wanted to learn um if i could go back to college i would be a programmer it's all gone it it, it got pushed into the into the archives is I, I mean if i had to I, and, and i guess if some of the old code came back around i guess i could do it but uh the new stuff is far surpassed everything i hear it's simpler though like python i think oh, is i don't, I don't is, know <laughs> is one of the ones that i've looked into trying to learn yeah um, i tried taking a course but i just didn't have the time for it yeah i mean so actually there are a lot of reporters that use python I mean, just be like data reporting has become a, a more of a thing I, I don't know how to do it i can barely run a spreadsheet Right. I mean, I can figure that out, but I mean, it, it's it's amazing what people are are are, are doing. Uh, you know, it, the ways in which it's becoming easier for people how to learn it. Right. And I'm sure. kind of with you, or sometimes I'm thinking like, man, I sh I should have learned how to code oh, instead yeah. of spin. Well, like you were saying about just a spreadsheet. It's just figuring out formulas and how to get the spreadsheet to talk to talk to itself and getting things done. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, that's a, that's a task in itself. Back in my old construction days, I used spreadsheets for 10 years. So oh, I, I still use them on a pretty regular basis for me accounting. Me too. Me too. We do it. You know. we, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if I wanted to be a, a drone pilot for you, I mean, what would, what, would you, what would I be getting paid? I mean, how does that, is it, does it vary by contract or is there a standard fee that you're, that you're 
that you're paying me based on my skill set? What happens there? Right. So there's essentially four things that, well, there's four things that go into the price of a job. You have the height of the, the AGL height, above ground level height of the drone that's flying. You have the overlap and the side over the front overlap and side overlap of the images that you're taking. Um, I'd have to draw it out to you to make that explainable. Um, and then you have the equipment, yeah. uh, the sensor, right? You have RGB, what you're looking out with your eyes, what you're seeing right now, red, green, blue. You have multispectral, which is mainly used for agriculture. You have LIDAR, which is um, essentially sonar or radar with light. And then you have multispectral, which captures five different uh, uh, spectrums in the electromagnetic uh, spectrum. And that's mainly used for agriculture. So, um, those are your essentially variables that control the price and based on that um we we, we determine what we pay the pilot we typically just you know have a set per percentage of mar mar gross margin that we want to make on each job and whatever it costs the pilot gets the rest of it hmm. so i mean and i'm guessing like so going back to the the uber analog right i mean there's a you have to sort of have a device that can do of certain quality, right? I mean, like, I feel like that was always part of these sort of rideshare programs. You had, well, you can't just have some old beater that gets around, right? You need a car that people can <laughs> So is it the same kind of thing where you have to say, like, well, here's this, the drone standard that you need to reach in order to participate so that you're not just getting, you know, somebody getting an RC car and kind of coming in and saying, like, yeah. I got something and I strapped an iPhone to it. So, so the number one used drone in America right now is the Phantom 4 Pro. Okay. Um, the majority of our pilots have that. Um, and there's a ton of different options, but DJI is the the leader in drone hardware production worldwide. How much does one of those cost? Uh, so you can buy um, a smaller one anywhere from I'd say 750 all the way up to you know if you're getting into agriculture, 60, 70 thousand. But the 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 Phantom Pro, Phantom 4 Pro is around 1500, I believe. So you. You know, you asked if you wanted to get in, in the network and be a drone pot. First thing you do is you'd study for the 107 test. You could take a course, uh, go to flyguys.com, click be a pilot, click on our, uh, um, take, take, take a course. Um, and then you would pass that course at, at a local um, um, schooling center. Once you pass that course, you're a pilot. Then you would buy your drone. You go to app.flyguys.com. That's app.flyguys.com, and you would sign up, and then you're in our system. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with Adam Zayer of Flyguys and Frank Hensel of Labackbeat. So, Frank, it's kind of a similar question to you. I mean, you're building a high-quality product, right? Um, you're entering a market where, I mean, the expectation is these things are somehow disposable. I mean, you're thinking about Keith Moon's like literally blowing, he's dead, but I mean, he's right. blowing things up. Sure. But, I mean, even your average uh, touched jazz drummer, right, is going to break some sticks. So, I mean, I, I would imagine that first bear you got to break is, hey, it's worth your investment to pay a little bit more to have this higher quality stick. I mean, is that something that clicks for people? Uh like I mentioned before, after it's, it's getting it in their hands, it's yep. getting the product in their hands, and uh, most almost every time a drummer comes by, like a rock drummer, this you know, like I said, like I mentioned earlier, breaking two to three sticks a gig, they they come back to me and they say that they're going two to three gigs before they break a pair of low backbeat sticks, mm -hmm. you know. So it's it's one of those. It's again. It's one of those getting it in their hands. And a jazz drummer. I've got jazz drummers around the world. I've got a guy in Germany. He's still playing on product he bought 
pre-pandemic. So he's, I, I don't know really when he's going to come back and order some more. <laughs> Can I ask a question here, Frank? Yeah, go ahead. So how much of this do you think it has to do with, you know, our essentially our economic culture of building things that don't last long to, to throw it away? Oh, I think it's, I think it's very much so. Um, my CPA is, uh, he's been on me. Uh, he's a good friend. He's a drummer, uh, kind of a hobby drummer. But he's like, come on, man, plant obsolescence. You got, you got to figure out some planned obsolescence. You got to figure out how to make them break. And it's like, man, I don't know how to make them break. You know, I, I just find it so, um, and so impressive that you're actually trying your best to build a quality product that can last a long time. Well, honestly, Adam, I didn't necessarily set out for it to be uh, me trying to do it. Um, when I initially started doing this, I thought it was I was going to make a stick that was comparable uh, or an equivalent to the Vic Firth or the Vader or the Promark, the Regal Tip, you know, the major manufacturers, the big four, as you call them, in the industry. Uh, Regal Tip, not so much. You haven't heard much of it. They've been kind of quiet in the last two years. Uh, but uh, as it turns out, just some of the processes that I, I do in the shop is yielding a superior product um, I have there's theories I have some hypotheses um, but do I dare take those elements out of the equation and then have a disposable product I don't know if I want to do that and you said and you had a name for it which I've never heard plan planned obsolescence planned obsolescence yeah. and that's that's pretty much in the in the world of the world we live in the consu- in our consumer society it's planning for it to go obsolete. Like, you can just ramp it, right? It's everywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's in everything. It's in your it's car. why you have an iPhone it's, X. It, it's, yeah, yeah, it's in your phone. It's in your, your washer. It's in your dryer. It's in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've bought a refrigerator lately, but they're not built like they were 10 years ago. Um, and your washer and dryer, sure, it's not built that Another way. Another good example is golf tees. Yeah. Uh, I found these plastic ones. I can use them for three or four rounds. And they're done. And, and no, what I mean, those the wooden ones, you use them one, one hole or two holes. Yeah, sure. These plastic ones, yeah. they can last for months right. if needed. Well, and there's some brands, right, that, that do make their name. I think cars are when you kind of the first time I ever heard the term planned obsolescence was in the car industry, sure. right? There's an expectation that, you you know, well, if we're going to sell, a, if you're going to make your, your money off of something that could last forever, this is a problem, right? And so you kind of the car manufacturers start making these cars that break down after certain periods of miles or whatever. But then there are some brands that people turn to them because they last forever. Sure. And you think about some of the, you know, or, or even just thinking about it, you know, we, we people generally say, oh, the German manufacturers, the Japanese manufacturers, they have, you know, better quality. And so it seems like sometimes there is an advantage to that. I mean, like where people are like, you know, no, I, yeah, maybe I'll buy two pairs of sticks, but I'm, I'm a, Labac beat customer for life because I can rely on it. Right. I think that's I think that's your selling point. Well, that that has been my my push is that I'm going to continue to to make as good a quality product as I can because that seems to be what keeps drummers coming back. And like I mentioned before, I don't necessarily want to take it take it out of the equation just to experiment and see what's see if what I'm doing is making it last longer. Uh, so I'm just going to keep that keep that going and. And, I commend you and, for that. And make it make yeah, it go. That's, that's wonderful. Have you so, so, have you pulled endorsements or anything like that? I mean, I know that's a big piece of the music industry is getting, you know, artists that folks know. It's like, oh, it was, you know, 
Johnny Vodakovich plays with these drumsticks, right? I mean, like, has that been an approach for marketing for you? Uh, as far as getting endorsers? Yeah. Or it, I guess endorsees would be the word. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the it, there's a there's a there's a misconception I think in the industry, and I, I don't I don't know if I'm reading you correctly. Yeah. But on the endorsement aspect, most of your major brand endorsers are endorsers. Right. They endorse a product, and uh, it instead of the brand endorsing the. The, yeah, the I guess that's what I'm asking is like, um, you know, it would seem like if you're trying to get your product out there, you would want somebody and, famous to be like, I use well, the uh, backbeat sticks. Right? Sure. And yeah. I, I do have I, I, I do have people that reach out and they 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 want to endorse the product. Um, you know, some of the questions I ask are, are you currently using the product? <laughs> you know, and you know when when it comes if it comes back no, then it's like well maybe you need to buy some product and they're just looking for free sticks. Yeah, and <laughs> as as we know in society, there's nothing for free. Right. Um, right. I would say the one person in the in the in the world of drumming, the one or two people that ever got anything out of endorsements were Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. <laughs> you know, those were two of the biggest icons in drumming that that probably got free stuff. <laughs> Um, now maybe there there are some of the big guys in the industry these days that get free stuff, but uh, a lot of drummers get stuff at cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Adam, you said earlier, it sounds like coding and you know the platform and all that is is integral to your business, but you do not code. I do not code. So I'm thinking about that moment where you're looking in the sky and you're like, I'm going to make a business out of that. I mean, how do you get from that idea? I mean, I, working was it just I got a get this guy over here, he or she knows how to do coding. So, how, how did you, I mean, it seems like the, the platform is the key to your business. The platform is the key to the business. Yes, you're correct. So early on, five, six years ago, we used to use Dropbox to deliver the data and Excel to organize everything. Okay. You know, after you do more than 10 missions a day, <laughs> try using Dropbox and Excel to organize that. It just doesn't work. So I knew I had to build a platform, and I knew what I wanted, wanted it to look like. So I designed it myself, and we hired Agilent Technologies, a local firm, to build it. And then we've been modifying it and improving it over the past four years. Hmm. So when you say you designed it yourself, but you don't code, so how did you design it? I didn't design the architecture, sure. like the back-end architecture, but I designed the front-end user face and the functionality. So you basically set up, this is what it needs to do. This is what it needs to do. Yeah. Here's how it should work. Kind of like a storyboard. The, these are the functions, yeah. right? Like a like a, a, a framework. Yeah, interesting. And, and so, and I mean, how many iterations have you had to go through to perfect that since then? I mean, I imagine as you guys get big, like, look, you already ran into the first scalability problem, right? When you had Dropbox, we iterate itself. every month. Wow. Okay. We iterate every month. We are constantly iterating. So, is there a point at which your company is just, you know, maybe you need to? pause and take a breath it sounds like to I me mean, like when i asked you earlier how many pilots you said you said you, you know you checked yesterday how many pilots you had signed up i mean how fast is that growing we're, we're, we're signing up eight a day wow eight a day on average sometimes yeah. we get 16 sometimes we get three and, and sometimes and most of these people are finding you i'm assuming it sounds like yeah we're paying no advertising on on finding pilots this is all this is all organic seo organic growth wow Frank, are you doing, do you distribute it, you know, 
the kind of the major retailers or people coming and finding you online the same it's, way? It's been mainly word of mouth and uh, a lot of organic growth um, with the ups and downs in the business. Um, it's been one of those elements where I don't necessarily want to push too hard yeah. into a distributorship. Um, another aspect with uh, with manufacturing is that it's it's very lean. Um, there's there's not a huge profit margin. Is, is when you bring a distributor in, they get a they get a big piece of the pie. Right. Um, so it's that that means it makes it super lean. So. I, the way I've looked at it is I'll continue to do the distribution as as long as I can personally. Um, and so if I want to buy some sticks from you, where, where do I go? Uh, well, you could go to Um You could hit social media, Instagram, Facebook, um, preferably more so Instagram than Facebook. I'm not a huge fan of Facebook anymore. <laughs> Sell through Amazon? Uh, no, Amazon takes a big cut. They take a huge chunk on Amazon. Um, yeah. So I... And then if you're not direct, it, there's some weird stuff going on with Amazon where if you, uh, not to diss on Amazon, but if you're not part of their family, they push you up further down in the rankings on Amazon. So you don't necessarily get the exposure. Part of their family, what does that well, it's, mean? It's, um, I mean, Amazon has it's, products that they kind of... They push. Yeah. You know, they, okay, like... Okay. Like, so there like, might would be a bigger brand that they're going to surface those rankings at a higher level and sure. say we're not really that concerned about Labacbe. Right. And so you go, you go and you search in Amazon and it doesn't come up. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not an Amazon oh, yeah. expert. That's, but yeah, that's kind of how it works. Um, yeah, I had my, my son-in-law. He uh, works for Kidcraft in, in Fort Worth. And he was talking to me quite a bit about Amazon. And I did a, a bunch of homework on it several years ago. And it was just—it just didn't seem like it was worth it to me. I mean, it, at some point, right? If it's working for you, it's working for you. And I don't mean Amazon. I mean, like, if you—you're going to sign somebody up, they're going to take a cut of your product. But if you're able to get out and and, and do what you want to do on your terms, I don't think anybody would fault you for that. Whether you're trying to grow methodically, you're trying to go quickly, and it sounds like you right. guys are both doing this. Oh yeah, on well, your terms. I, I think so it's, I think it's very similar. You know, it's, it's an organic growth, and I think with at least with what I'm doing, I don't want to go too big too fast because I'm ar- it's, it's already a challenge with machine issues and things like that with being able to keep up with production. Uh, you know, so, you know, being able to kind of ebb and flow and be in touch with my clients and if I have some issues, I'm transparent and I let them know what's going yeah. on. And we have a lot of, uh, over 90% of our work is recurring and we're growing, um, you know, just through the growth of those clients. Um, but we did just bring on a marketing team, a VP of marketing, um, super good, um, about six months ago now, and we just made a, a, a VP of sales hire, senior VP of sales hire, um, actually on Wednesday. So we're starting to, you know, we're starting to push. We're starting to push now. Well, as long as you guys are doing it the way that you want to do it, that's what really matters. And it sounds like you guys are both figuring it out on your own terms and succeeding at it. And um, thanks so much for joining me today on Out to Lunch with Gadiana. Well, thanks, Christian.
Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. Yeah, really appreciate it. My guests today on Out to Lunch have been Frank Hensel of LeBackbeat and Adam Saylor of Fly Guys. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRVS. And you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Frank and Adam by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. And you can find and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Dylan Babineau. I just told him he was going to take photos of us. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered and then later photographed by Dylan Babineau. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. I'm Christian Mader. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit news outlet. For stories deeper than the headlines, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 